I feel so empty. I don't know who I am, but whatever I am is bad. I feel like a combination of everything everyone expected me to be, so I don't think I ever became myself. Tony A. Gaskins Jr. said this, Self-love. It doesn't mean that everyone will treat you the way you want to be treated. It means that you won't let them change the way you see yourself. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Today we're going to talk about a unique and a uniquely important aspect of mental health, the subject of mirroring, okay? So let's talk about mirrors first, and then we'll discuss what mirroring is in terms of childhood development, and then how it affects your adult relationships and mental health in general. Remember when you were little, you would go to county fairs, carnivals, that kind of thing, right? Remember the House of Mirrors? So if some of you don't know what this is, you've probably seen pictures of it online. You walk into a large set of rooms, and every room has mirrors, and they're pointing in every direction, okay? So part of the fun is seeing your image distorted in a number of ways. And then the other part of the fun is trying to get out. So the Hall of Mirrors, the House of Mirrors, is positioned in such a way that it confuses you and that you'll run into yourself, you'll keep running into dead ends or the glass again and again and again. And it's supposed to make you laugh eventually, even though it doesn't look like a clear exit, you get out. Okay, but the whole point is to sort of distort your reality of yourself and your surroundings. In one mirror's reflection, you're going to be stretched out really big. Remember these mirrors? It's just funny to look at yourself. You move up and down, like my face is stretched out, my chest is stretched out, my hips are stretched out. And then in another one, you're miles high and your legs look like they're 90% of your body. And then in another mirror, you go on and on and on forever, right? The reflections of you are endless. And then in another mirror, because of how the mirrors are situated, you can't find your reflection at all. And this is like the most interesting part of the House of Mirrors for me, because I remember moving back and forth, like three feet this way, three feet that way. I'm like, I got to be able to see myself. I'm like, where am I? I am a person. Why can't I see myself? And it's interesting because you're standing right in front of the mirror and you can't see you. And then finally, on your way out, there's usually a correct mirror that's right size. And you think to yourself, ah, okay, there I am. All right. Mirroring in relationships works exactly the same way. Everyone we interact with reflects us back to ourselves through their eyes, starting from the moment we're born to the time we die. Mirroring is a lifelong process and a lifelong experience. All right, let's dive in. Y'all know me. I like to geek out a little bit and discover the etymology of the words we use. And for those of you who are new to the podcast or for those of you just not familiar with that term, etymology is just the study of the origins of words. And sometimes it really does give insight into what a word really means. OK, so the etymology of the word mirror is Latin. It's mirare and it means to look at. OK, now this becomes very important for our episode today. Why? Because. Mirroring is all about how we experience and perceive ourselves based on how others see us. Remember the funhouse at the carnival, right? The mirror determines the us we see. If the mirror is reliable, steady, accurate, we're going to get a pretty good reflection of who we are coming back at us. But if the mirror is distorted, our perception of ourselves through that person's eyes is also distorted. Let's geek out a little bit more just for funsies. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in your brain when you're mirroring others and when others are mirroring you. So mirroring. Mirroring has been studied more intensively since the 90s. And neuroscientists at that time, they were studying rhesus monkeys. They gave a certain type of neuron, which is just another word for a brain cell. Uh, That's when they coined the phrase mirror neurons. And today, for our purposes, we're going to simplify this a little bit, but they do a lot of things. Mirror neurons do a few things for you and for development. But today, we're going to focus on one function. 
specifically, and that is this. Mirror neurons allow us to learn through imitation, which means they give us the capacity to reflect others back to themselves. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Mirror neurons allow us to learn through imitation and reflect others back to themselves. So this makes sense. Imagine you're playing a game and you're standing in front of another person and your job is to be that person's mirror. So whatever they do, you do. They raise their right hand, you raise your left hand. They raise the other hand, you just mirror them. They smile, you smile. They raise their eyebrows, you raise your eyebrows. That is mirroring. Okay, that's exactly what we're talking about. It's that simple. So in 1975, Dr. Ed Tronick conducted an experiment that is now regarded actually as one of the most important experiments in psychology around the subject of childhood development. It's famous. We now know that he was actually studying mirror neurons. But at the time, he described it more in terms of childhood attachment and the need for connection. So here's what he did. And if you want to go look it up, just look it up. Go to YouTube and type in Tronic, T-R-O-N-I-C-K. It's got like 12 million views. You can watch it. It's a really, really cool experiment. It's only a couple minutes long. So here's what happens in the experiment. A mother and a baby, and the baby's really cute. She's like one year old or so. And they're brought in, and the direction given to the mom is first to simply interact with the child normally. Okay, so the baby squeals and the mama squeals and the baby points and the mama looks and the mother is mirroring the child beautifully. That's what she's doing. She's wholly engaged. She's attuned to the little baby and the baby is clearly delighted. The baby's engaged. Their eye contact is strong. It's really dynamic and beautiful to watch. It's really cute. Everything the baby does, mama's right in step with it, okay? Then the mother is instructed to turn away, so she turns her face away, and when she returns her face to the child, it's expressionless. And this is where the experiment got its name, the still face experiment, okay? So no matter what the baby does, the mother is instructed to keep her face still and expressionless. Friends, it takes all of a second for the baby to realize that her mother is different and unavailable. The distress that registers on the baby's face is immediate. And quite frankly, it's kind of heartbreaking to watch. It's actually a hard experiment to watch if you have a shred of empathy. So the baby squeals and the mother does nothing. And the baby squirms, reaching out for the mother, and the mother does nothing. Her face remains expressionless. The baby points, and this time mama doesn't look. Then she starts crying out. She's arching her back. She's struggling to get to her mother. She's in a car seat. She's strapped in and she's leaning forward, reaching, and the mother simply stares at her with no expression on her face. And at this point, the baby starts to cry and it almost looks like she's panicking. Okay, she doesn't know what to do to get her mother's attention. Finally, the experiment ends, thankfully. The mother turns away and when she turns back, she's allowed to be completely attentive, available, and playful again. And it takes the baby about a second maybe even two seconds to figure out. She sort of assesses her mom, like, what is going on here? And then she establishes in her brain, okay, mama's back. And they go back to playing and the happy connection resumes, okay? So I think everyone watching it, when the mom comes back to the baby, you feel a sense of relief. Again, if you have a shred of empathy, because that feeling that the baby experiences really does border on panic. Now, this experiment was groundbreaking at the time, and it's still one of the most powerful visual examples of a human being's need for connection, but not just connection, mirroring. The child and the mother's mirror neurons are in sync with each other when they're connected. And at times, it's even difficult to determine who's mirroring whom, because when the baby makes a face, mama makes the same face, she mirrors it. But when mama smiles, baby smiles. So they're just in sync. They're in tune with each other. Okay, you know where I'm going. This baby is us. We are that baby. This is what we needed, and it is what we still need. Let me tell you a little story. 
I am trained in the Gottman method. And John and Julie Gottman are marital researchers. They're very well respected. They've been at it for many, many years. They've written so many books you can't count. And they have a methodology for couples counseling called the Gottman method. And I've been trained in level two. There's four levels and I'm up to level two. And I go to the level two training. It's the first day and there's, you know, 40, 50 therapists in the room with open notebooks. We're all ready to learn. And this man stands up and he's got a PhD in whatever. He's got a couple of masters, actually. He's the clinical director of this. He's on the board of that. He chairs the National Association of whatnot. Like, his pedigree is insane, right? I remember looking at his credentials. And I was like, my God, this guy has done nothing but be in school and climb this ladder. He's amazing. So he stands up there and he says this. He goes, before we get into any of Gottman whatsoever, you all need to know one thing. And we're all sitting there, you know, we're eager therapists, we're learning, we're waiting for some nugget of wisdom, you know, research, what have you, whatever it is. He says, we're all just two-year-olds who want our mommies. That's all you need to know about couples counseling. Let's begin. (laughs) We're all just two-year-olds who want our mommies. And I'm here to tell you, he's right. We are that baby. We want someone who reflects us back to us. We want someone who looks when we point. We want someone who smiles when we smile, who frowns when we frown. We want to be mirrored. But even more importantly, we need to be mirrored by the people around us. So let's talk about the parent-child relationship, okay? Vanessa, why are we starting here? Well, because this is where it all starts. This is where we learn how relationships work, whether they're healthy or not. This is where we learn the rules. And one of the most fundamental, primal, essential dynamics of the parent-child bond is established through mirroring. So like the Tronic experiment really effortlessly demonstrates, mirroring begins early in the life development process during infancy. Now, the point of mirroring is connection. It's a way of communicating without words, I see you, I'm attuned to you, I'm here with you fully, we are connected no matter what, good, bad, sad, happy, we are connected. The effect of mirroring is very complex, but one of the greatest relational outcomes of mirroring is giving the child an experience of him or herself. It's as if the parent is saying, when I see you, this is what I see. Now, friends, think about how important this is. Little babies straight out of the womb, no learning process involved. They feel physical sensations like heat, cold, wetness, dryness, hunger, satiation. That's all physical. And they feel emotions like fear, anger, frustration, joy, peace, contentment right out of the womb. What this experiment taught the whole field is that they also feel connection. It starts that early and they need it. But if we're talking about an emerging child, not just an infant, a child, an adolescent, an eventual adult, and what they begin to know about themselves, what they have to begin to know about themselves to live a life worth living whatsoever, we're not just talking about physical sensations anymore or emotions. We're now talking about things like self-concept, right? This is the development of the self. It becomes much more complex. It becomes much more abstract, where we're not just beings who are hungry, dry, and sleeping, or awake, right? But we're beings who have a sense of self. Who are we in relation to other people? Even going deeper, a sense of self-worth, value. This comes through mirroring. This is why that parental mirror is all important. Yes, the need for a felt sense of connection starts in infancy, but the need for mirroring lasts the entire lifespan. And hear me now, this is important. There is no more powerful mirror than the reflection of a parent to a child. 
I'm going to repeat this because it's so important. There is no more powerful or important mirror than the mirror of a parent to their child. Now let's talk about what disrupts that all-important parent-child mirroring relationship. Top of the list, unresolved trauma. Unresolved trauma. Trauma deeply affects and changes how we see ourselves and how we see the world. Our self-concept might be positive, it could be even neutral, but if we have suffered trauma at all, at any age in the lifespan, our self-concept and our sense of safety in the world is forever changed by the trauma. It becomes negative. That's what makes trauma trauma. It changes us. And so the only way to return to a neutral or a positive state, a sense of self, is to process and resolve the trauma as much as possible. Now, this can take one conversation if it's small trauma, or it could take many years, depending on the severity of the traumatic experience. But if there is unresolved trauma in a parent, it makes sense, wait for it, that parent is seeing the child through the lens of the wound. For example, I'm going to give you a couple of different examples because this is so big. It's important. If there was sexual trauma in a parent's past, they may see their child as a potential victim and they will work zealously, even maniacally, to protect that child from any and all dangers. And sometimes we see this in helicopter parenting or kids who grow up, quote, in a bubble, right? They may even see their kids, and this is sad, but if they've been sexually traumatized, they might see their children as an object as they were treated themselves. So as an object, they were objectified as a sexual object. They lose touch with the dignity and sacredness of themselves. They cannot mirror back the dignity and sacredness of the child. Does that make sense? You can't mirror back what you do not have within you. So the child's autonomy is not mirrored back in the first situation. In the second situation, the child's sacredness is not mirrored back. The mirror is the parent. And if the parent is distorted in their self-concept, the image they convey to the child is also distorted. Let's say there was physical trauma in the form of physical abuse. The parent may have well lost the sense of their own vulnerability. Why? Because they had to toughen up to survive. That's survival. But here's what happens when they mirror their child. They may fail to mirror back the child's sensitive, vulnerable heart because they've lost touch with their own. The trauma in the parent creates a block. Whatever the parent had to do to survive the trauma, and that could be trauma at any age of their life, not just childhood trauma, it could be adult trauma. Whatever trauma is unresolved, whatever they had to do to survive it, whatever coping behaviors they've developed, those behaviors become the new normal. This is now the lens through which the parent views the child. That's the mirror. Okay? In families where depression is present, the child is not mirrored back accurately because of the depression. So no matter what the child might present on their face, the face of the parent will mirror pain more often than not. Now, what does this do to a child? Well, the child may cut off their own joy because it's not being mirrored. And what does that do? It furthers the generational depression. Now we have two generational patterns here of not allowing or experiencing joy. It's not mirrored. This is how important mirroring is. What is mirrored is allowed. It's ingrained. It's imprinted. Now, what does the child do in this situation? They may surrender their humor, their playfulness, their spontaneity, that sense of freedom that children have. If these things are not mirrored back, if they're not seen, why? Because children will always, always choose connection over authenticity. Always. 
The subconscious reasoning might sound something like this. Well, if the only way I can connect with mom or the only way I can connect with dad is to be blank, then I had better do that or be that. Do you see? Children will do anything to maintain the connection. It's the parent's job to mirror the child. So in my office, I might hear from adults, you know, my mother rarely smiled. My father was always working. We didn't laugh much as a family. Or I might hear, I walked on eggshells. No one wanted to be the reason for an outburst. Okay, another situation where mirroring gets disrupted. In families where there's excessive anxiety, everything is a reason for panic, fear, dread, overreaction. You've got highly reactive parents. The child's sense of peace is not mirrored. And the parent's is not mirrored in the child. So rather, we have the state of the parent imposed on the child, and instead of parent mirroring child, we have child mirroring parent's anxiety. Do you get it? It goes both ways. We have to note that here. Mirroring goes both ways. Mirroring is how parents stay connected to their children emotionally, but it's also how children learn. We didn't learn how to fold a shirt or slice an apple without mirror neurons. Remember that mirror neurons are what allow us to learn by imitating, not just reflecting. So when children are not mirrored by parents, they're still learning through imitation. This is why so much dysfunction gets passed down generation after generation after generation. It's learned. And some of us swear to ourselves, I'm never going to be like my mom. I'm never going to be like my dad. And I'm here to tell you, you might. Likely, you will. Unless you consciously set out to own your pain. Okay, go all the way back. What was that? Episode number four, we have to face our pain. Go all the way back to owning your pain and engaging it. And then you've got to look at the behaviors that you took on, your coping behaviors for how you coped with that pain. Now, all of this takes energy, will. It takes practice and intention, just like you're learning anything else. Unless we do that, we're going to repeat a lot of the same patterns because of those pesky mirror neurons. Okay? Now, in families where addiction is present, the parent is not mentally or emotionally present to mirror the child back accurately. They're just not there. They're on the drug, whatever it is. Now, there's an immediate need for empathy from parent to child that's lost. Now, I've actually had some parents argue that their ability to be present with their children is enhanced on certain drugs. And I have to wonder about this individual's common sense. Come on, let's think through this, okay? I think the argument here is that the effects of the drug open the mind in ways that we don't experience in sobriety, so the parent is better able to see and interact with the child more deeply. Okay, I get it. I do. I have myself have smoked some weed. I get it that you believe that your experience of the child is enhanced. But do you really believe this is true of the child? Secondly, how exactly would we know? Have you ever been completely sober in a room full of people who are drinking alcohol or using drugs? It probably feels like that for your kid. And we're kidding ourselves. We're kidding ourselves if we think children can't tell the difference between a sober, emotionally available adult and an adult who's high. And I think we know which one the kid would choose if given the choice. Right? So we need to remember this. Where dysfunction is present, the parent will always reflect back the version of the child that allows the parent to avoid their pain and not face the dysfunction. This could be through addiction, habituated marijuana use, abusive cycles, unhealed trauma, family secrets, and so on. I'm going to repeat that because it's important. In a dysfunctional family system, the parent will always reflect back the version of the child that brings them the most gratification and doesn't challenge the dysfunction. This act of mirroring back what protects the dysfunctional parent is how we get dysfunctional family roles. So let's talk through this. 
Addiction, which is one type of dysfunction, is all about medicating pain, right? When you're in a relationship with an addict, particularly in childhood, the only parts of you that will be reflected back to you are the parts that allow the addiction to proliferate and to continue on uninterrupted. Okay? The parent who might be psychologically addicted to marijuana says to the child, you know, don't take, don't take life so seriously. Don't worry too much. Okay? That's a laid-back, drug-induced mentality. It's non-reactive. It's hypo-reactive. It's not reactive enough. Right? Why? Because he or she doesn't want to ruin their high. They want to be in that mental state. They're more concerned about medicating their pain. So the normal and developmentally appropriate concerns of the child are not addressed, and their worry is not reflected back to them with loving care. This child creates a self-concept now based on the parent's mirror around neglected and unseen needs. Do you see? This is how it works. The dysfunctional parent reflects back the badness of the child, also known as scapegoating. Why? So that they don't have to face their own guilt and shame. It's just easier to dump it on a child than it is to face it myself. The alcoholic might reflect back the goodness and the success of the child, also known as placing the child in the hero role so that the parent doesn't have to face their own failures. A parent mired in their own unhealed wounds might fail to engage a child at all. They fail to see them. Remember the root word mirare. It means to see. And this is known as the lost child in a family system. This child is not mirrored enough or hardly at all. They're not seen. This child may likely grow up into someone who easily will take on false identities, very extreme identities, because they want to see themselves. Every move in their life is some huge, broad brushstroke of an identity formation, an identity change. They weren't mirrored. So they redefine themselves often while avoiding intimacy because of that lack of healthy mirroring. Now we have the emotionally needy parent, and their needs are not met through a partner or a healthy support system. So they may reflect back and engage the loving, supporting, caring aspects of a child, okay, thereby giving them the family role of the caretaker. But what do they do in effect? They plummet them into a hole of codependency, which is difficult to get out of because that child is now mirroring the parent's unmet emotional needs. In religious families that lack a lot of emotional depth, you know, where doctrine takes the place of humanity, the family is high on doctrine. They're strong on zeal, faith, but they're low on human empathy. So parents will mirror back an idealized version of the child, but they neglect the human being. They dismiss, they miss the human being. So the child is informed by this mirroring that they are allowed to be nothing, quote unquote, but a child of God, you know, behaving this way, believing these things. But in this situation, we are reflecting back an ideal, not a person. Ideals are shiny. They're neat. People are complex and messy. Again, unhealthy mirroring is where we get the phenomenon of family roles. You are in this role in your family's dynamic, the golden child, also known as the hero child, the scapegoat, always blamed and at fault, the loner, unable to touch other people's hearts, unable to be touched emotionally, the baby, coddled, rarely challenged, perpetually immature, the caretaker, cares for the emotional needs of the parents and the whole family instead of the other way around, or the sensitive one, as if having a sensitive heart in a family is a flaw. Or the mascot, the one who keeps us all laughing so we don't have to face our pain. Okay, you've heard me say this before. The greatest problem with a family role is that it defines you through the lens of other people's dysfunction, not as you are. And the second biggest problem with family roles is that you're rarely allowed to be anything else. They're limiting by design. Stay in the role and the family holds together. 
We might be holding together in dysfunction, but we're holding together. All right. So this is the same phenomenon in the House of Mirrors. Are you getting it? Everywhere you look, it's distorted. It's not you. The lens is distorted. The mirror, the parent, the trauma, the addiction, whatever it is, that's the distortion. So the image you're seeing in yourself, the reflection you're getting of yourself is distorted. That role, whether it's good or bad, the label, the reputation, that isn't who you are. If you were not mirrored in a healthy way, and that means your parents failed to give you empathy, it's really what it comes down to, then you have to really ask yourself, is what my parents reflected back to me? Is their definition of me, is this identity that I received through mirroring, is this really true of who I am? Now, we need to talk about narcissism. It's such a buzzword these days, and I think I know why, and I'm going to say something about that in a minute. But before I dive into that, I'm going to tell you why I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about narcissism today. Narcissism is, in its very essence, a problem with mirroring. The root of narcissism is, of course, Narcissus. That's where we get the name, the Greek mythology story. And Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection, right? So narcissism is the trap of only being able to see the self, only being able to see oneself. Everything in life is about the self, right? And we have to address this today as a matter of course, given the subject matter. In a healthy parent-child relationship, the parent is reflecting the child back to the child. So imagine that classic image of a mother cradling their child and they're gazing at the baby in their arms. In the healthy relationship, she's reflecting the child back to the child as if she's saying, when I look at you, I see you. You, whoever you are, I'm here to witness you and reflect what I see back to your own eyes. In the narcissistic parent-child relationship, the child is reflecting the parent back to the parent. The mirroring is reversed. It's as if the parent is saying, when I see you, I see the answer to my pain. When I see you, I see a reflection of me in you. That is narcissistic parenting. Do you see the difference? In healthy relationship, the parent is responsible for meeting their own needs in their own world with other adults. And this renders them emotionally available, meaning there's plenty of space to reflect the child back to the child. But in the narcissistic parenting relationship, the child is responsible for meeting the unmet needs of the parent. And this is why the relationship is so exploitative. What does it mean to exploit? It means to leverage your power over another person, less powerful than yourself, to your own advantage. That is the essence of exploitation. Friends, there is no greater power differential in this world than an adult and a child. It is so easy to exploit children. And this is where most of the damage is done. This means the child now has an impossible job, and that job is to meet their parents' unmet needs. And often, in the case of narcissism, that need is to bring the parent feelings of importance, worth, value, safety, success, connection, power, needfulness, whatever it is. The needs we're talking about here are often unknown to the parent. They're living in the subconscious mind. They haven't done that work. And this is what happens when parents live vicariously through their children. Their needs are now being met by the child. This is toxic to a child beyond explanation. But Vanessa, isn't it okay? Isn't it right for children to meet their parents' emotional needs? No. 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 I don't know how else to say it. No. Friends, this is why narcissism is such a buzzword right now. 
because we're living in an era in which parental narcissism has been normalized. It is the pattern of generations past. It is what we are used to. Remember that child labor used to be viewed as completely acceptable. That's not that far behind us. Now we look on that and we're totally abhorrent. Oh my gosh, how did we ever let children sit in sweatshops? Well, I hope, my hope would be that we'll look back on this model of the parent-child relationship with the same level of disgust. My goodness, remember the days where we thought that children existed to bring their parents satisfaction? Now, are children satisfying to their parents? Of course they can be. Do they bring joy? Do they bring honor? Do they bring pride? Of course they do. But that's not their job. It's a byproduct. I can't say this enough times. It is not a child's job to meet the emotional needs of the parents. It is the parent's job to meet the emotional needs of their children. I'm going to repeat this for the people in the back. The responsibility of emotional care flows one way in parent-child relationships for most of that child's life, and that is from the parent to the child. When parents get into their older years, and yes, they need care, very often they need emotional care, that role naturally changes. But when that role is reversed in childhood, this is damaging to a child on a level that cannot even be expressed in words. And yes, I'm speaking from some personal experience here. You can hear it in my voice. The pain of the narcissistic wound is not easily outgrown. Some of you may have heard of Khalil Gibran, his famous work, The Prophets, one of my favorite books ever. When I was going through a crisis of faith, I feel like The Prophet really got me through. Take a look at it if you've never read it. But I'm going to read his thoughts on children and the parent-child relationship. And I think The Prophet was written in the 30s, wasn't it? It's an old book, but he was so ahead of his time. Listen to this. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. And you may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday." You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. The archer sees his mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable." My friends, the parent's job is to be the stable bow from which the arrows launch. Parents may impart character to children, teaching them to live with kindness and integrity. They should impart values to children, teaching them what really matters in life, but they cannot and may not impart identity. That is up to the child and the divine. The healthy parent allows their child to discover themselves. The narcissistic parent needs to steer and control the child based on their own ideal of what the child should be. And this ideal will always be in the service of the parent's unmet needs. The healthy parent allows a child room and space to experiment and test their own limits. The narcissistic parent cannot allow a child any room to venture outside of the parent's comfort zone. The healthy parent says, I'm going to keep reflecting you back to you even when I don't understand you. 
then the narcissistic parent says, I will only reflect back what I approve of and can understand. The healthy parent can reflect back failure without shaming a child because the child's successes and failures are their own lessons to learn, and the parent knows that. The narcissistic parent cannot reflect back failures or successes without making them about the self. A healthy parent engages with a child in a way that makes the child feel safe, accepted, loved, fulfilled. The narcissistic parent engages with the child in a way that makes the parent feel safe, accepted, loved, and fulfilled. This all goes back to mirroring who's mirroring whom. Now, let's switch our focus to adulthood. If we were mirrored in childhood through loving, healthy, caring eyes, we will have a good sense of who we are. We might feel we have a balanced perspective of our strengths, our growth areas, we like ourselves, we love ourselves. We might have what the 12-step world calls a right-sized view of ourselves. Not too big, not too small, not too important, not too insignificant. We don't play ourselves up, we don't play ourselves down. Not too bad, not too good, just right. Okay, right-sized. On the other hand, if we have an extreme view of ourselves, if you have an extreme view of yourself, either extremely bad, extremely good, extremely important, extremely insignificant, your parents' mirror was distorted and your sense of yourself is now distorted as a result. What does it feel like when you're mirrored in adulthood? Friends, it feels like empathy. You aren't alone in your feelings. Someone is with you. They're present. They're attuned. They're feeling with you like the mama and the baby in Tronic's famous experiment. It feels like being seen. You know, when you walk away from a conversation and say to yourself, man, that person really sees me. That's a classic feeling from a good, reliable mirror. And I will be honest with you, sometimes it feels really uncomfortable. We have trouble seeing our beauty as others do. We can't see ourselves that way if we weren't well mirrored as children. It's hard to accept compliments. It's hard to see our strengths. If we were mirrored by abusive people, we will easily see our faults. Easily. And when we look in the mirror, that will be what we see. We will be seeing ourselves through their eyes and their mirror was abusive and the image is distorted and all we see is bad. Being mirrored in adulthood can feel really uplifting. Why? Because we didn't know who we were until we saw ourselves through the eyes of someone who really loves us. So it's time to ask ourselves some questions. When I see myself through my mother's eyes, who do I see? When I see myself through my father's eyes, who do I see? When I see myself through my lover's eyes, who do I see? When I see myself through my best friend's eyes, who do I see? When I look in the mirror, who do I see? Let's go back to our quote. Self-love. It doesn't mean that everyone will treat you the way you want to be treated. It means that you won't let them change the way you see yourself. Friends, we can't control who mirrored us in childhood. That's way beyond our control. If that mirroring experience was filled with love and respect for who we are, we're going to know it. We'll feel that. It won't be hard for us to see those things in ourselves. But if it wasn't, if we were exploited, if we were abused, if we were mirrored in any way that served to meet others' needs for power, fulfillment, for importance, then we need to own the next statement. We need to own this and accept that it is true of us. Here it is. The mirror that reflected me back to me was distorted, and this view of myself is therefore distorted 
too. Why do we need to say this to ourselves and own it? Because we are never going to get to a realistic self-concept. We're never going to be able to see ourselves unless or until we admit that the way that we were mirrored was off. Go back to earlier in this podcast. If there was unresolved trauma, if there was addiction, if there was depression, if there was a lack of empathic religion, if there was abuse, if there was narcissism, If there was any kind of exploitation between parent and child, that mirror image is distorted, which means your self-concept now could be distorted too. It's so important to get this. The work is to get back to reality, to get back to a reliable sound mirror. Well, what does that look like? Look to the people who love you. Look to people with whom you feel safe and let them tell you what they see. Look to a mature, competent, loving counselor. Let them tell you what they see. Look to nature. I saw this image recently on social media, and it just blew me away. It was so beautiful. It was sort of a cross-section of the human body next to elements of nature, and you've seen these pictures. Your lungs look just like the trees. Your veins, the veins in your hand, the lines on your hand, they look just like the veins in leaves. Crack open a walnut. looks just like your brain right? Let nature reflect you. Get into nature. It is a pure mirror. That's one of the greatest things about getting into nature. There's no human voice. There's no distortion. It's just nature. You're a part of it. You belong there. Let nature mirror you back to yourself. Look to God. Look to a divine source that loves you and accepts you, not one that shames you. If your idea of a higher power is shaming, that is not a reliable mirror. A reliable mirror is filled with love and acceptance and compassion and mercy and understanding and grace. And let that source speak to your heart. And be cautious. Beware of false and distorted mirrors. Listen to your gut when your gut's like, that's not me. That's your body talking, which is our podcast last week, right, on boundaries. Listen to your body when it talks. Some of us had to go through a lot of years of therapy to be able to say, you know what, that's not me. Thanks anyway, but that's not me. Be cautious of people who distort you to yourself. Don't let your life become a house of mirrors where you're always looking for a way out because every reflection of you is distorted. Find a reliable sound mirror. And that mirror should always be grounded in love. You know, I remember years ago, I don't remember where I was, but I was watching some teenage girl interact with her father. And there was so much closeness there. She was laughing. He was laughing. And they were mirroring each other beautifully. And, you know, of course, at the time, I didn't think of it in those words. But that's actually what I was seeing. That was heartwarming. It was mirroring. And it was being just done effortlessly and beautifully between this teenage girl and her dad. And I remember thinking to myself, She's so well-loved. That's the phrase that went through my head. She's so well-loved. That's I'm looking at someone who was well-loved. That's what it looks like. There's radiance. There's joy coming from the inside out. And at that time in my life, I didn't have any sense of that whatsoever. And then I did some work. And years later, I had never thought of it again. I kind of forgot that image. But it sat in my heart in a very meaningful way. I just didn't really consciously think of it. And then years later, after many, many years of therapy and 12-step work and silent retreats and lots of nature, and I don't know how many miles I ran in the woods, I remember one morning looking at my face in the mirror, and there was such a peacefulness in my eyes and such a calm in my expression. And I looked in the mirror, and I said to myself, 
That is the face of a girl who's well-loved. And at that moment, I remembered what I had seen. That's mirroring. Eventually, my friends, we've got to be able to mirror ourselves and say who we are. I hope, I have a mirror in my office, and I can't use it for every client because some clients can't bear it. But for some clients, when it's appropriate, I'll take my mirror out and I'll put it on the table and I'll have them look in it and I'll have them just say what they see. And it's amazing how at a certain point in therapy, everything they see is negative. I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm stupid. And then over time, it's pretty amazing. Ugh, I could cry as I describe this, but I can put that mirror in front of them and they'll gaze in it and they'll say, I see someone I love. I see a survivor. I see eyes that have wisdom. I see someone I respect. That's what it's about. Eventually, we become our own loving mirror. All right, let's pause there. I have to thank you every week for this because every week it gets better. Thank you to everyone leaving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It does help. It helps us climb the ranks. I mean, my goal, of course, is to be the number one mental health podcast in the United States. We've hit the ranks in other countries, just so you know. Um, So you're helping drive all of this forward. That number keeps climbing. Our downloads are climbing almost exponentially every week. So you guys are driving this thing, and I cannot thank you enough. I do my best. I'm going to keep hard at work in my office, in my therapy sessions, and on this podcast to bring you content that you can use to heal yourself and heal your relationships. And friends, together, we are healing the world. Let's not be small-minded about this. This is how you do it. It starts within yourself. Then it starts in your closest relationships and your circles. And families are healing. And families are having conversations. And the way that you're engaging your friends is changing. It's getting more healthy. That's the work. We're doing it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this. As always, the email address to get in touch about the podcast is thepodcast at vanessalondino.com. You can follow me on Instagram at... Vanessa underscore Londino underscore LPC. Remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. Make sure the person you see in the mirror is the true reflection of you. Here's a hint. If who you see when you look in the mirror is absolutely beautiful, you're on the right track. Till next week. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino podcast.